Let us pray. Give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior Jesus Christ and proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation, that we in the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Our Old Testament reading comes from the book of Nehemiah. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on, Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshullam, on his left hand. And and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, And all the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord. Your God, do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The word of the Lord. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your, disobe- when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. 
If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved but the one whom the Lord commends. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and was, as he was, it was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. We thank you, Father, that your joy is our strength. And we pray, Lord, that we would know joy uh, this morning that comes from you. Joy in your word, joy through your spirit, joy in being together and worshiping together. So lead us, Lord, we pray and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I should note as I begin that uh, we um, love to have uh, lots of members of Church of the Cross involved in various ways. One of those is um, reading, and so we're always inviting people, hey, if you're interested in reading, let us know. If you heard the Old Testament reading this morning and thought, I am never signing up for reading, just know you are always allowed to say, I'm going to pass on this reading. So thank you, Lauren, for not passing on that one and doing lots of homework and getting those names well uh, read. Um, And not every Old Testament reading has lots of names in it, but man, that one sure has a lot of names, doesn't it? So... (laughs) 
Um, uh, so many um, years ago, uh, when I uh, lived in the Chicago area, I was once um, driving, um, and I was driving rather aggressively, because um, that's sort of the way um, you drive in Chicago, at least that was the way I drove at that time. And as I was aggressively driving and trying to navigate the, the traffic and grumbling to myself about other drivers around me, it suddenly struck me that maybe as a disciple of Jesus, the way that I was driving needed to be adjusted. That maybe it was inconsistent with my desire to live as one who seeks to honor Christ. And as I was thinking about this, I thought about a, a person in my life at that time who really was a spiritual mentor um, to me and had helped me in a lot of ways grow in an understanding of Scripture and grow in prayer and had prayed for me a lot and shared with me a lot. And I thought about the times I had driven with him. And I thought about what an obnoxious and aggressive driver he was. And so I thought to myself, well, I mean, he is definitely farther along as far as, you know, maturity in Christ than I am, but he's a terrible driver, so I'm off the hook. Um, and as that sort of nice feeling kind of sank in, like, ah, good, I'm off the hook, I had this strong sense that the Lord was saying to me, is he your standard? And it was strong enough that I thought, ooh, okay, apparently I can't use my friend's awful driving as an excuse to sort of remove this part of my life from the lordship, right, from the, the standard of Jesus. Now, I realize when we read the Gospels, we see no point where Jesus is driving. So he, he rides a donkey at one point, but that's a little different. Uh, but the Gospels and all of Scripture call us to um, uh, give all of our life to Jesus. And I needed sort of that revelation to say, okay, right, Lord, help me to drive in a way that pleases you. I will probably do it imperfectly, but that is the standard. Instead, though, we are often um, uh, tempted right, to make others the standard. Look at uh, uh, that second part of verse 12 there in our Second Corinthians reading on page 7. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. How often do we do that? How often do we measure ourselves by another? We compare ourselves to another, and we actually show we are without understanding. We are not understanding what it means to live as one submitted to Jesus. Now, to say that, though, doesn't mean that we don't need others. Because Paul, who is affirming that we should not measure ourselves by one another, also, at numerous times in his letters, says to those he is writing to, imitate me. And so we do need others, right? We need to look to others to help us to grow. I needed a spiritual mentor. I'm in that uh, friend of mine who wasn't a great driver but was a mature disciple of Jesus who made a huge impact on my life. We need spiritual mothers and fathers. We need mentors. But of course, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We are called, right, to imitate one another and help one another in ultimately imitating Christ. Again, Jesus is our standard. And I want to consider, actually, how we could perhaps imitate uh, Paul as he imitates Christ in this passage today. As we see Paul interacting with the Corinthians and, once again, interacting with criticism and, and resistance um, from the Corinthian church, we see him in this um, actions, in these uh, words, um, emanating Christ, imitating Christ, being like Christ. And how does uh, Paul here help us live to the standard of Jesus and all that we do to imitate Christ and to be like Jesus? And so let's consider that at first. Um, a little uh, context here. Again, we are uh, back in 2 Corinthians. We're in 2 Corinthians this summer. We're um, studying again in the season of Epiphany. We'll come to the end of 2 Corinthians just as we're entering into Lent. Um, and um, 
part of studying the books of First and Second Corinthians is trying as best as we can to understand some of the dynamics that influences or helps us understand what was going on and what exactly Paul's concerns are here. And one dynamic that becomes clear in this reading will become clear in upcoming readings, and we've seen it before, is there was resistance against Paul and specifically against his authority as an apostle. And there are some who really questioned, should they be listening to Paul? Should they be listening to his, teach, his teaching? And we see a defensiveness, and we see it here, where Paul has to defend himself and has to say, you, you should be listening to me. As best as we can understand it, as we, again, try to understand the context and study this book, there were sort of two groups that were opposed to Paul, um, or we can at least put them in two categories. There are probably multiple groups. There so are two categories of groups. One is those that are part of the church, kind of insiders, we could say. Those, perhaps some of whom Paul knew when he helped start this church, right? And so people that consider themselves a, a member of that church and should consider themselves under Paul's authority as the one who started the church and is a, an apostle with authority over it. And they are resisting Paul probably for multiple reasons. But again, one primary reason is some of them don't like what Paul has taught. Right? They don't like the correction he has brought. They don't like that he tells them that they can't participate in idol worship because that you know, hurts their social life. Right At the time, social life involved idol worship, and they don't like that he's saying they're not allowed to do that. They don't like perhaps what he said in the passage right before this, which we looked at last week, where he tells them to give generously, to be cheerful givers in the giving of their finance, to care for the least of these. They don't like, we know for sure, at least some of them don't like, what Paul's taught them about sexual morality and how they are to glorify God with their bodies. And so there are those who are just resistant to some of his teachings, but then there are those within the church have been, who have been influenced by those outside the church and have been influenced to turn against Paul and to treat him with suspicion because of the outsiders. So that would be the second group, right? The outsiders, outside in the sense that they probably don't see themselves as members of the church and part of the church, but they are seeking to influence the church. And they specifically, very clearly, are seeking to turn people against Paul and against his authority. He refers to them in the, the next chapter, which we'll be studying next week, as super apostles. He says that sarcastically. That basically, they saw themselves as so much better than Paul, right? He says, they're, they're super apostles, right? They're so much better than me. And we know that basically they're attacking Paul and sort of pointing out in their category, according to them, how unimpressive he is. So they, we know they attacked his rhetoric, right? We can see that here, right? He's not really impressive in person. You know, he's not, he's kind of a weak guy and he, he's not forceful enough when he's in person. They um, uh, attacked uh, the fact that he had suffered so much, right? They pointed to him and said, you know, this guy's an apostle, but I mean, you know, if he's God's servant, why does God treat him so badly? Because he's in shipwrecks and, right? I mean, he has had all this suffering on his part. I mean, they even attacked him because he didn't um, ask the Corinthians to support him financially. Like we would say, wait a second, I thought you attacked people because they do ask you to support him financially. But they actually said, look how weak he is. He won't even make you pay him for his ministry to you, right? He got support from other areas and he made tents and, and raised his own support from his tent making. So basically they come against Paul and how unimpressive he is. And he is now responding to his criticism. We'll see this over the next few weeks. I'm pointing to Jesus and basically wanting them to see what I do comes out of who Jesus is, right? And the way he's responding to them is a Christ-like way. And so the first thing I would say that we can, again, learn from Paul is our way comes from Christ. And I'm using way there in two different ways. 
because um, you try to, when you're a preacher, get two points into one. So then, you know, you could have three points, but really the first one um, uh, is sort of two points, right? But way can be used in two different ways. It could probably be used in multiple ways. Um, if you, uh, you know, I feel like in old movies, like movies I watched as a kid, there was like this reoccurring joke that like would come up a lot. Maybe it was in cartoons as well, where someone would like come into like some mansion and there would be a butler there and the butler would say, walk this way. And he would turn, meaning, you know, follow me in the direction I'm leading you. But then the butler would have some sort of weird way of walking and so the person following them would like walk like the butler. Is anyone following me here? Do you remember this? Like Bugs Bunny must have done that, right? And so, you know, so it's basically way can mean direction and way can mean manner of walking. And basically when Jesus says to us, walk this way, he's saying both. He's saying follow in the direction I lead, but also walk in the way I walk. Walk in the manner which I walk. And basically we see in Paul, he is saying my way is Jesus' way. I believe that's the calling for us. Our way is Christ's way. Our mission, our direction, our path is Christ's direction. And so, verse 1, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. What is he entreating them to? Again, he's entreating them to not reject his leadership, to not reject what he's taught them. This follows, again, right on a teaching about giving. So it's building on that. But I think it's just in general, he's saying, don't reject what I'm teaching you. Because actually, I'm calling you to the mission of of Jesus. What is the mission of Jesus? Well, praise God, we get one great um, summary of the mission of Jesus in our gospel reading today from Isaiah that Jesus makes it clear, this is my mission. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Proclaim good news to the poor. Proclaim liberty to the captives. Recover sight to the blind. Set at liberty those who are oppressed. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We, the church, the body of Christ, are called to this, right? Jesus again, uniquely um, fulfilled of this calling. He is the answer to um, Isaiah's prophecy. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him in a way that it is upon, not upon any of us. He is the anointed one, the Christ. But we are the body of Christ. And so this is our mission to fulfill in Christ and with Christ's help. And Paul, when he's correcting the church of Corinth, he's correcting them because he wants them to fulfill this mission. The correction and the directions are about being the body of Christ. And so how can they proclaim good news to the poor when they aren't generous and when they aren't willing to give to the poor? How can they proclaim liberty to the captives when they themselves are bound up and oppressed because of their idol worship, because of their sexual immorality, or because of the many other things that he needs to call them to? Behind all of his correction is you need to fulfill the mission of Christ. And this is Paul's mission, to proclaim good news to them. And sometimes that good news involves correction and shining the light on sin. But again and again, we see in Paul's writing, he also shines the light very clearly on Christ's mercy and on Christ's grace. Right, so this is the mission, but what does he say? I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. There is a way you are to go, but I am calling you to that way you are to go in a Christ-like way, in the manner of Jesus, the meekness and gentleness of Christ. We are called to be in that way, the way of Jesus, the gentle way. Then maybe you read that and you say, okay, that's what he says, right? But then, I mean, by verse 2, he's saying, am I going to have to be bold when I come to you? Right? I mean, is he suddenly threatening them? He's saying, I'm being gentle and meek, but then he's threatening them, I'm going to be bold. But to be clear, to imitate, to live out of, to seek the way of Jesus, the way of gentleness and meekness, does not mean not being bold. It doesn't mean not speaking out the truth. And again, we see that in our Luke reading. It is bold to stand up in the synagogue to read from a prophet and to say, this is me. 
Right? That's bold. Only Jesus can do it, right? But he did do it. And if you remember the rest of the reading, or if you read the rest of Luke 4, you know the response is not, oh, awesome, that's great. The response is, really? I don't know. Like, we know you. Like, you're a hometown boy. We don't know if we believe this. And how does Jesus respond to that? He gets even more bold and basically says, you know, I knew you would reject me. And then they tried to throw him off of a cliff. That's how bold he is. Makes me think I haven't been bold enough in my preaching. No one has yet tried to throw me off of a cliff, right? I mean, I, I'm trying. No, I'm not trying. Don't throw me off a cliff. I don't, I don't want that, right? Jesus just walks right through them. He does not get thrown off the cliff. But so boldness, right, correction, does not mean not being Christ-like. But again, we see Paul seeking to be meek and gentle, even as he seeks to be bold. And I believe perhaps the reason that they confront him, right, and they say, well, you know, he's bold in his letters, but he's not bold in person, is because they're actually seeing both of this. They're seeing a clarity and a, a willingness to correct and speak the truth, but they're also seeing this gentleness, right? So when Paul confronts someone about a sexual and moral relationship they're in, and they turn from that and they repent, he celebrates that. He says, welcome that person back in, and then people are mad at him for being too gentle. But again, he is doing both things. He's being bold in the truth, but he's being clear about God's grace. He's being gentle and meek with them to say, right, there's forgiveness, There's, you know, repentance, and you are welcomed back into the fold. And he's being attacked for that. But again, he is responding to those attacks with with a a, a meekness and a gentleness. So that's part of the way of Jesus. But we also see the part of the way of Jesus that Paul is walking in is the way of spiritual empowerment, the way of seeking the help of the Spirit. So verse 3, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Okay, well, so the end of verse 2, right? They suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So basically when he says that, he's saying people are saying, right? Probably, again, these super apostles are saying his ministry is not empowered by the Spirit. It's just sort of fleshly ministry. It's just ministry that comes from his own strength. They're accusing us of of walking according to the flesh. But then he says, verse 3, though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. He's sort of playing on the word flesh there. He's acknowledging we do walk in the flesh, right? We're jars of clay, as he says um, earlier in 2 Corinthians. We're, we're weak, right? We're imperfect. I'll fully admit, man, that maybe I'm not a real impressive speaker, right? And, you know, that I've suffered a lot. So I'm not denying that there is a weakness that we know as humans and as fallen humans, but we are not waging war according to the flesh. We're not waging war in a a merely human way. We are waging a spiritual battle. We are dependent on the Spirit. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Again, not saying that we don't pray, you know, in our bodies or we don't worship in our bodies or all the ways that we engage in spiritual warfare. He's saying they're not absent of the Spirit. The Spirit is at work because we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. He's saying there is a battle. That battle is actually not against you, the Corinthian church. It's not against the super apostles, right? As, as much as, you know, he's um, unhappy with them and wants to lessen their influence. It is a battle against spiritual forces. It is a spiritual battle. Right? And that's the way of Jesus, right? To, to stand and to seek the empowerment of the spirit to stand against uh, the forces of Satan and the forces of evil. And so he's making clear that is our ministry. As we read this and we say, well, what does that look like, right? To have divine power to destroy strongholds, to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Again, if this is the work of the Spirit, we can say, well, what does it mean to receive the, the work of the Spirit? 
I mean, a few things we can say and affirm is the Spirit is the Spirit of life. And so we stand in the Spirit of life. We receive that gift of eternal life and abundant life, right? We live in that. And we stand against and we come against the Spirit of death, right? The, the spirits of destruction, the small s spirits that come against us. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. To engage in spiritual warfare is to stand in the truth that the Spirit reveals to us to hold on to that truth, to proclaim and to speak out that truth as we do on Sunday, as we do when we pray and we read the scriptures, right? When we say the liturgy, we are speaking out the truth that the Spirit has revealed to us. The Spirit is the Spirit of power. And not worldly power, not that having worldly influence or having power is a, a bad thing in and of itself, right? but it's a problem when we seek worldly power above the power of the Spirit. And oftentimes receiving the power of the Spirit means laying down worldly power. He often calls us, right, to sacrifice and to give of ourselves in ways that make no sense to the world. Again, there's so much we can say about engaging in spiritual warfare, but we should see here again that is warfare inspired by, empowered by the Spirit of God at work uh, within us. And so that's, again, the way of Jesus. To say, we're not fighting people, of course not, but we are in a battle. And we need the help of the Spirit. We need the truth of the Spirit to empower us in that battle. So our way comes from Christ, but then jumping off of that, we can also say our authority comes from Christ. And Paul is wanting to make it very clear that I stand in the authority of Jesus. So why would he say this? We can say, man, that's pretty bold to say we are engaging in spiritual warfare, that we're destroying the strongholds of the enemy, that we're destroying every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Like, does he have that authority? And the answer is, yes, he does. And so do we. Jesus said, I will build my church, right? That's us. We are the church that Jesus is building. And he said, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. He was saying the gates of hell will not stand against us, his people. As we, again, submit to him and as we know his power at work, right? We can't do that on our own. But in Christ, that's what we're called to. And so if we read this language and we think, man, that's pretty bold of, of Paul. He's just doing what Jesus said. He's storming the gates of hell. I mean, appreciate that this is language of offense, of coming against the strongholds. Right? It's not just defensive, right? We know the Lord is our, our you know, protector and defends us, but also the Lord calls us into battle. And again, the battle is speaking the truth. And so there's an authority right, that uh, Paul stands in, but note verse 8. Even if I boast a little too much of our authority, right? and in there he speaks specifically of our authority as apostles, right, which the Lord gave for building you up and for not destroying you. And that's so important. As we read about the spiritual battle, to be clear, it's not about destroying people. It's about building up people. It's about destroying strongholds. It's about punishing every disobedience, right? But he doesn't actually say punishing every disobedient person, right? I mean, he wants to see disobedient people disciplined so that they will grow and turn away from their sin. But he talks about punishing every disobedience, He's coming against, against spiritual forces. He's coming against lies, but he's seeking to build people up. As we think about that in our areas of authority, again, we all have authority, right, as the church, to stand in the authority that Christ has given us, but we've been given specific places of authority, maybe as a parent, right, maybe, in, you know, as a, in your work, um, in places of influence. The Lord has given you authority. He's putting you in places where there is an authority that you have. And a great question for us to continually come back to and ask is, am I using the authority the Lord has given me to build up? And again, that doesn't mean not being bold at times. It doesn't mean perhaps not speaking a word of correction at times. But to say, is my goal ultimately to build up? 
It's always good to check ourselves and say, Lord, am I actually wanting to tear down others? Am I actually being motivated by desire to hurt others rather than to come against spiritual forces, which hate people, right? The Lord loves people. He loves all people. If we're working the authority of the Lord, then we love people, and we want to see people built up, even if that means perhaps them first repenting and, and sort of being a little bit taken down in order that they may be built up. But our ultimate goal is not destruction of people, right, but to build them up. And so to act in authority, though, also means to be under authority. And so we see Paul, even as he's affirming, I have authority in Jesus, he's also affirming that he is under the authority of Jesus, and actually he's under the authority of others. And so if we go back to those great verses in 4 and 5 about um, this uh, warfare, at the end of verse 5, what does he say? And take every thought captive to obey Christ. Well, before that, he's speaking about coming against these strongholds, coming against these arguments. But whose thought can he take captive? I mean, he can't take other people's thoughts captive. He can't take the thoughts of Satan or demonic forces captive. He can only take his own thoughts captive. And so even as we engage, right, in speaking out the truth in a spiritual battle, we take our own thoughts captive. There's a reminder to ourselves. There's a living in the reality. We are under authority. Even as we've been given authority, we need to ask ourselves, am I living under that authority? Are there thoughts I need to take captive? And taking every thought captive doesn't mean, oh, I'm so stupid, oh, I'm such a loser, right? You know, that's, that's not what taking every thought captive looks like. Matter of fact, actually, those are the thoughts we need to take captive. Right? When we say, I'm so stupid, I'm such a loser, do we say, is that from the Lord? Right? Let me take that thought captive. Let me grab that thought and bring it before the Lord and say, is this what you speak to me as your child? We can say, well, no, that's not right. Yes, I'm supposed to be humble. Yes, I'm one, a sinner who's been forgiven and been called to, to serve you, right? But actually, that thought's a lie. And the thoughts of pride that I have, right, that I'm better than others, that I'm superior, those thoughts are lies, right? The thoughts that I need worldly power in order to have power, that's a lie that I can bring, take captive and bring to the Lord. So we live in authority, but we live under authority. And we also see this, and this is subtle, but I think it's really important Look at verse 13, where Paul says, But we do not boast beyond limits, but we will boast only with regard to the area of influence that God has assigned to us, to reach even to you. So he's speaking to God called us, right? He's probably speaking of himself and Titus and Timothy and those he partners with, to minister to you and to have an authority over you as the church. God called us to be missionaries, to start churches among the Gentiles. That's a clear calling that Paul received from the Lord. But that calling has been confirmed by the church. I think here he's getting into, look, I work with others. I didn't just decide on my own, this is what I'm going to do, right? But God assigned it to us, this calling. But that was affirmed, right, by the church in Jerusalem. If you read that in Acts, in the Jerusalem Council, they celebrate that Paul and Barnabas at that point are called to reach the Gentiles, right? The church in Antioch sent them out. So Paul is one who's under authority, ultimately under Christ's authority, but he honors others. I was talking with someone um, this week, right? We were talking about how sometimes when we think of Paul, we think of him alone, you know, on a ship somewhere, traveling around by himself. I remember my kids had a book about Paul and all these pictures of him by himself. It's like Paul was never by himself, right? He was always with others, right? There are always all these names, you know, that he ends his books with saying, say hello to this, so-and-so is with me right now. He sought out others, right? He, he lived under the authority of other leaders, even as he acted in authority. And he lived in the reality that he was called as an apostle. So we are called also to live in the authority of Jesus. Under his authority, but live out the authority. But finally, 
right? We are called um, to live in the value that comes from Christ. That our value, our worthiness, our calling comes from Christ. So the way we, we minister, the, the authority we minister in, but our value. As we read this, right, I mean, one thing I love about the book of 2 Corinthians is we do see, of course, the humanity of Paul. He is defensive at times. He actually says at times, maybe I'm being overly defensive, right? I mean, you can see that even in this one. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, maybe I'm overdoing it with affirming my authority, but this is why I'm doing it. Right? We can see sort of the, the way he's struggling. Right? And of course, it would be so hard right, to have started this, this church and to be called as an apostle, to, to love, to see Gentiles coming to faith. And Paul, of course, himself is Jewish, and yet to be attacked and to be undermined. And to actually have criticism come against you that there's some truth in them. Right? We get the sense that Paul wasn't perhaps real impressive and wasn't perhaps real eloquent in person. And so we can imagine the pain that he must have felt and the desire he must have felt to just give up and sort of say, all right, I'm done. And yet we see that he finds his value in the Lord. We see this so powerfully in the end. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our temptation is to boast in our success, to boast in our impressiveness, all the things we want to boast in. He's saying, boast in the Lord. For it's not the one who commends himself who is proved, but the one whom the Lord commends. May your boasting, may your value come from the commendation of the Lord. And the Lord commends good work, right? He celebrates our faithfulness. He celebrates the way that he ministers through us. But first and foremost, the Lord commends us for who we are. We talked about that a few weeks ago, the baptism of Jesus. Again, uniquely, (laughs) Jesus is the Son of God who the Father celebrates his baptism. But in Christ, we also hear those words. To us, right? These are my children. This is my son. This is my daughter with whom I am well pleased. He is a father who loves us for who we are. And first and foremost, that commendation from the Lord comes from our identity in him. And yes, he celebrates what we do and how we serve him, right? But our obedience does not make him love us more, right? That's a Christianity 101 and we constantly forget it. I forget it all the time. That's right. Jesus doesn't love me more when I'm obedient. He doesn't love me less when I'm disobedient. My value comes from who I am, from his love for me as his child. And so we live in that value, and that doesn't mean we can't receive correction. That doesn't mean we can't be under the authority of others. As a matter of fact, it frees us to free correction, to hear correction, right? We can say, oh, I can receive correction. I can actually be told something I'm doing wrong, and it's okay because my very self-worth is independent on whether I'm doing everything right or not. I can actually be corrected and say, oh, that's good, right? Because my self-worth is rooted in Christ. When this is so freeing, this reality, why are we drawn to comparison? Right? I know one reason, right? at least I'm drawn to comparison, is because when we're feeling really bad about ourselves, it's really nice sometimes, at least it seems nice, to be able to say, well, at least I'm not doing as bad as that guy, right? I mean, at least I can find someone else like, man, I really messed up, but that guy, he really messed up. So that makes me feel better, right? And that works for, what, you know, a few minutes, and you're like, ah, I feel pretty good. And then suddenly you realize, ah, but what about that guy or that girl, right? Because she did so much better than me, or they're doing so much better, right? I mean, pastors think this way. I, I hate to tell you that, right? You know, it's like, oh, man, my church is kind of struggling right now. But, oh, that church over there, they're really struggling. But then you realize, oh, that church over there is thriving, right? And we're all thinking that, and it's very unhealthy, right? But that's the temptation that we want to fall into, right? Comparison. We think it's going to help us, and ultimately it oppresses us. And why would we do that when we can find our value in Jesus? All right, so let's walk in the way of Jesus Right, let's live in the authority of Jesus 
may that come out of the fact that we are valued by Jesus. Let's pray for that. Lord, we thank you that even in Paul's struggles, right, which we can read and it can feel overwhelming to us, right? Here was your servant who had such significant difficulties. And yet we see in that a rootedness in you, Lord. And we pray that we would know that as well in the ways in which we face resistance, the ways in which we are aware of spiritual battles, the ways in which you are calling us to stand in the authority of you have given us in the places you have called us to. Lord, may you always be our standard. And we thank you, Lord, that not only are you the standard that we look to, but you are the one who gives us strength. And you are the one who forgives us and pours out your grace when we do not meet that standard. We thank you for that, and we pray for uh, um, just the reality of your presence to be um, made known to us in all that we do when we ask this. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.